Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Coaches Road Podcast. This week, we welcome on Travis Picard, the program specialist for the national teams for Hockey Canada. That was a great episode with Travis, and I'll start out by saying that originally we wanted to have Travis on for a, a Coaches Road Thursday episode, but you know we found that the, the episode kind of evolved as we were talking with him and, and got a little bit deeper and a little bit more theoretical. So we, we wanted to shift it to a Monday episode. And I think that's a, a good decision because there's a lot of really interesting ideas, a lot of good conversation pieces. Um, and we talk a lot about kind of how he runs his current team, which is the midget major team at Waterloo. Um, he is the new head coach there. So it was a, a really interesting conversation that I, I think will be um, very useful to, to a lot of coaches out there, Rick. Yes, I can totally agree with your statement here. And I need to say about Travis, first of all, a very great conversation we had with him and the places he has been coaching is very interesting. I mean, he has been coaching coaching in the, in the WHL. He has been coaching in the OHL. He spent actually some time in New Zealand. So that's something also very unique. And we also explore that in our conversation. And now he's coaching Mitchell's under 18, as he has been mentioning as well. And what I enjoyed the most... Well, I wouldn't say the most, but I enjoyed a lot about the conversation with Travis today. As I just said, he spent some time with newly, uh, he spent some time in New Zealand and during his time in New Zealand, he spent some time in the All Blacks. And I think overall, I can say that this was my favorite part uh, of the conversation because the All Blacks, the way how they run things, the culture they have established and the standards they set, they have a huge influence on our program in the first year of our classes, our um, sports psychological teacher. We had him on the show as well, Marcus Avia. He has classes about the All Blacks and why are they do the things, how they are doing it. And they have, as I just said, they have a huge influence in our program. And I hope that everyone will enjoy the conversation with Travis as much as we did. everyone welcome back to the coaches road podcast today we are joined by travis cricket from canada first of all travis thanks for taking the time and joining our show and how are you doing today thanks for having me on guys i'm doing great it's starting to cool off here in uh, in december in canada but the good news is we have our toques mittens and jackets to go outside appreciate you having me on yeah thanks for being here um, just kind of as an introduction, can you just give our listeners kind of a brief overview of yourself and uh, where you grew up, what sports you were involved in, and, and what you're currently doing now? Sure, I'll try to be brief. I was born and raised in St. John's, Newfoundland, on the east coast of Canada. Growing up, I played predominantly three sports, hockey, rugby, and basketball. I was probably better at rugby and basketball than I was at hockey, but for some reason I loved hockey more. So I continued on with that on this kind of long winding road of playing junior hockey, NCAA hockey. And then I moved into coaching upon completion of playing NCAA. And, and that coaching road has taken me from Canton, which at the time was a club hockey team transitioning to NCAA Division Three, midget AAA hockey in Ottawa, the OHL with the Ottawa 67s, 
the WHL with the Kelowna Rockets, two tours of duty with Hockey Canada at the under-17 level with the national team, brief stint in New Zealand with the Botany Swarm, who I actually still help to this day with recruiting import players. And currently, I coach the Waterloo Wolves under-18 AAA team and work with Hockey Canada to develop a renewed focus for high-performance programming across the country. So a lot of exciting stuff around hockey. What, um, what would you say your favorite memory is with the sport? I think it would probably be um, something from coaching rather than playing because I wasn't very good at playing. And that was probably one of the reasons why I was so intrigued by coaching. I'd say if I could pick one, I'd rewind to 2013. Uh, I was coaching the Ottawa Junior 67s mid to AAA team. And we had, a, we had a really strong team that year. Uh, we were doing a lot of good things in our own league and in tournaments that we had participated in throughout the year in Ontario. Uh, but, but once we kind of started to play the, the top teams in the province or other provinces, things began to get a little more difficult for us. Perhaps we weren't as skilled as those other teams, but one thing I do believe that we had was belief. So much so that we ended up winning the Central Region Midget AAA Championship and going on to the Talos Cup final where we lost to Red Deer. But I think the memory part there was the Central Region Championship was won in double overtime. And it was a game that we ended up, I believe we were up like 5-1. And our opponent came back and tied at 5-5. And I just felt like although there were there were a number of goals in a row that were unanswered, a number of sequences in a row that suggested that our team was probably going to lose the game because the other team had all the momentum. I never felt like that because I didn't see my players feeling like that. They had this kind of belief that not every team does. And anyway, they, yeah, they ended up executing and scoring a winning goal on a backhander from the blue line to win that central region championship. So that was probably my, my favorite memory just because it was a fantastic group of players and coaches that I had a chance to work with. I was really happy to see them succeed. So why do you think that season overall was so successful? Was there any other additional reason next to the belief in the group? Well, looking back, one of I had a couple of priorities at that time. And number one was at the beginning of the year, I promised my players that we would go to the TELUS Cup. And number two was I promised my players that all or close to all would play junior hockey the following year. And If memory serves me correctly, of the 20 players we had on our team, the following year, 17 of them played junior hockey. Two years after that, every single player on the team was playing junior hockey. And many of them ended up progressing to the next stages of hockey, junior A hockey, NCAA hockey, OHL hockey, youth sports hockey. And today there's actually a couple guys still playing 
in college and, and one in the NHL. So I think uh, that was a big success for me. And the success was seeing them succeed on the ice. But we also have a lot of guys who are super successful in other endeavors now. There are guys who are engineers. There are guys who are like high-level investment bankers. They all went on to be super successful. So that was really that was really cool and probably even more of a success than just winning a championship during one year. Well, I guess uh, especially in this kind of season when you have a, when you're coaching a group which is getting so close, like as you said, the memory will stick forever you and overall it must be a great experience. And I think if you made an experience like this that actually shows you what kind of influence you can have on the people you are coach and also also overall what is the reason why you are coaching because at the end of the day we want to develop good hockey players and but most importantly we want to give develop good people and as you add good people and as you said here right away so many other guys they have been taking a different path and one guy is playing in the NHL so I think really making that experience uh, is something very very valuable and Speaking about yourself, um, when did you start coaching and what motivated you to start? I started, well, I always, when I played, I always worked at hockey camps during the summer, like most, most players did. But at no point during that process that I think I actually wanted to be a coach. That just seemed more like the logical thing to do for a summer job. Coaching got on my radar in, I think it was probably my third year in college. I, I'd suffered a pretty bad injury and it was kind of unclear whether I was going to play in my, my fourth season or not. And my coach at the time had a meeting with me and he, he actually asked me, he's like, have you ever thought about coaching? And I said, no, I want to play. He's like, Yeah, but hypothetically, what if you can't play? What if this is the end for you? And kind of being stubborn or hard-headed at the time and thinking that I was going to keep playing, I kind of was ignorant to that. But as time progressed and it looked more like I probably wasn't going to play in that fourth year, coaching made a little more sense to me. So... I kind of jumped at it. I ended up getting a volunteer position at the State University of New York at Canton in kind of an assistant coach slash goalie coach role just to see what it was like. And it ended up being great. I loved it. I loved being around the guys. I felt like maybe I should try to do this for a career rather than go down the path that I was thinking I might go down. And That's kind of where, where it all started for me. It was just a simple conversation that I was totally ignorant to at the start. But um, yeah, I remember that conversation to this day. It's always fun to kind of hear the different stories and the different ways um, everyone gets involved with coaching because I think everyone has kind of that unique background and how they got in. Um, but now that you've been coaching for, for quite some years now, um, Have you thought of where you want to go with coaching and kind of what your professional goals are in your career now? Oh man, I, that, that one is tough to answer for me because I have a, I have a 
20 month old daughter and I have a wife who is just, is just starting her, her law career. So if I was to be honest, I'm not quite sure because I just want to, I want, I want to do the right thing for everyone. I don't want it to just be all about me. If this was maybe two years ago, I'd say I'm just going to do coaching and that's it. Whereas now I can't just pick up and move wherever I want to move because it might be some coaching job that I like. It needs to make sense for all of us. So perfect world scenario. I'm behind an NHL bench, but I'm okay with whatever makes sense the most for me and my, uh, my family members. With that said, that I think that can lead into a really interesting part of the conversation. So what, what do you see as, um, or what do you see the role of a coach being when you think about kind of youth hockey or professional hockey? What, just what is the role of a coach? It's pretty simple for me. A coach's role is to be a catalyst for behavior change. I, I don't, you could throw in a lot of other things, a motivator, but it's very simple. Catalyst for behavior change. You get a group of athletes or people at the beginning of a season, they're there to get better. In order to make them better, they need to perhaps change or improve upon some behaviors. And your job as the coach is to help them get there to where they want to be. So, for example, let's say you take a new team over like you did now in, in Waterloo, is that right? Yes. Yes, uh, sir. What, yeah, Waterloo. So if you take a new team over, as you said, like the role of a coach is for you, a catalyst for behavior changes. Um, how do you want to establish that change in behavior in your new team? Well, I think, I think the biggest thing for me over the past number of years in coaching is that each player is unique. So if I am going to actually be that catalyst to their unique behavior change, then I need to approach their development individually. If I just approach it from a team concept, one size fits all, then not everyone is going to develop in their own expression of the game. I think they'll all probably be better at playing systems or structure or a team game, but there are many, many nuances that go into playing hockey that are translatable to any team, regardless of the team's structure. So my approach to being that catalyst is trying to spend as much time with the individual or small groups of players to improve on things that perhaps they have not yet focused on for a variety of reasons. It could be that their previous coach prioritized team play only or winning only, or maybe they had a coach who only focused on shooting as opposed to the other skills. I can't say, I don't know, but I'm really trying to spend as much time within the player himself. So now you describe to us that how do you actually want to establish that change in behavior in your athletes and what role does core values play for you when you change their behavior? Core values, the, the way core values work for me is I think they always can connect things in the process of trying to get better. So 
when I approach players or a team, it's not about my core. It's not always about my core values. I have my own values. Each player has their own values and the team has a set of values. The team set of values and the player set of values should be set by those players. And here's the reason why. Because if they start to stray from those values, you can immediately pull them back in and say, you were the one who set these values. You were the one who said that this is what you value. Not me. I'm not forcing these on you. You told me that this is what you're going to prioritize throughout the year. So let's remain true to your beliefs. So before we jump into kind of your own personal core values, like you mentioned, but what are your, what are your team's core values for this, this season? And, and yeah, just like, what did the players come up with? We haven't even decided yet because we haven't even played any games. Like this, (laughs) this, this year during COVID is it's pretty cool, but it's also kind of interesting at times. I feel like, we are running a hockey school, which is, is kind of cool, like year, a year-round hockey school. We're really, we're really, we really have an opportunity to focus on some specific things to help our players get better, to move on to the next level. So I wouldn't say that we have a set of team core values, but what we have done is we've taken the time to learn about the individual player and what his core values are so that because we're not playing any games and because it's solely about the player right now and not the team's performance, we can use those core values to, to speak with them individually. Yeah, that's, um, I think that's a, a struggle. And I think it's um, something that I think a lot of people around the world are facing right now, but it's, it's good that, it's also nice to hear sometimes on our show, we, we get all these um, kind of go arounds or, or kind of solutions to, you know, what are we doing during the pandemic? And I, I like that, that you're kind of just more digging into the individual and then their values and kind of what makes them tick. And I think that's a, a pretty interesting way to do it. So moving to yourself, can you describe your core values and kind of your coaching philosophy? Yeah, absolutely. So I have three. One is to to be humble. And so that starts with being open-minded to learn. Number two is be hungry. So I'm talking about like hunger for excellence, to be a complete person, a complete coach, but also a complete student of the whole game and process. And the third one is, is honor. So that would be like, Honoring myself, my reputation, my family, my family's name, honoring the organization and the, the players and coaches that, that I help on a daily basis. And I, I, I do want to come back to something you said, uh, Derek, right before we got into this question, because it's such an interesting time with, with COVID and not playing any games that a lot of teams have already started trying to play their team structure and 
select captains and build the core values of the team without any games or competition or league in sight. And that's one thing we really talked about as a coaching staff at the beginning of the year. Like, do we need to do this right now? Is this going to help us? Or should our focus solely be on the individual? Because every, every other hockey season, we do that. We focus on team core values and all these things that are typical processes. But this year, we may never play games. So do we need to do that? And it seemed as though the resounding answer was no. So let's totally invest in the individual. Well, I mean, that's actually a, a very strong point you're making here is because like the team core values, of course, they're predicting of like the, the behavior you wish to see in your athletes, or as you said as well, the behaviors the athletes wish to see in their, in their self. But because the circumstances are how they are, it's really tough to predict when and how you guys will return to play and uh, return to play in Canada. And overall, regarding your own core values, how do you keep yourself accountable for core values or how do, how do other keep you accountable for them? I keep myself accountable to these as a coach with my players because I feel as though it's, it's my responsibility to make a personal investment in them. So this year, for example, at the end of the season or over the, over the off season, if there are no games, if there are no trophies or championships and players are speaking to prospective junior hockey teams at the next level, gone are the questions of what line did you play on? How many points did you score? Did you win? Uh, how many minutes did you play a game? None of those questions would be asked. The only question that would be asked was, did you develop this year? So in order for them to develop, I need to make a personal investment in them. So if I am not making a personal investment in them, then I am not doing my job. So it comes back to being humble, being open-minded to learn. So when I have, or I should say when myself and the coaches have development meetings with the players, we also send them a pretty extensive anonymous survey for them to send us back about our performance as coaches, because sometimes it's probably not quite that comfortable for a 16 or 17 year old to tell a coach whether he's doing a good job or a shit job. So I, I like for it to be anonymous and it gives us the coaches some valuable feedback as to how we're doing. Because learning is a two-way street. The player needs to be the, the learner. And if he is not open to, open to learning, then I need to tell him that. If I'm the teacher and I'm not doing my job, then I would expect the player to tell me what he needs or if I'm not doing the job. So I come back to it, it may not be comfortable for a 16- or 17-year-old to tell me that. So the best way to yield that is through these surveys. And I think it really helps guide our coaching. Are we doing enough? What should we do more of with a specific group of players? It, it's, it's, been, it's been really cool to do that with the guys. 
So you just mentioned the, the player surveys there, and I think that's a really interesting tool um, to use. And I, I think we, we just had Topher Scott on a few weeks ago, and he, he mentioned his uh, parent surveys that he does for um, talking about how, how that kid learns and what can I do better to connect with this kid and everything like that. So do you find that that has um, kind of a, a, an impact on how you coach each individual? And, and if, if so, can you describe kind of the, the way that you approach coaching the individual players? Uh, it definitely impacts how I coach them. And I think the more that, that we get this kind of feedback, the more that we get to know the players, it, it helps us understand how they learn. And what I've come to realize is that this group in particular this year, there are a lot of players on this team who are really, really smart and know the, the nuances and processes of hockey. And they learn best by asking them the questions. And oftentimes, we rarely ever need to tell them what to do. You just frame the question in a specific way and then they answer it. So the learning goes back on them because they're the ones who told us what the answer was, not us telling them. I think the more, the more that we as coaches can be quiet and let the athletes answer the questions, the better off they're going to be for it because they actually had the time, they actually had to take some time to think about it for themselves. So it becomes two-way learning rather than one way. And one way is me talking and then passively listening. So what would you say kind of overall has had the, the biggest impact on you and how you coach today? Science. I think that we, like we as coaches, we always try to balance this kind of art and science of coaching. But I think that coaching is an art that is 100% informed by science. I think that when you look at things such as how much a person can retain or how things should be said or depicted to a player or an athlete so that he or she can learn if you really spend some time learning about those things, it really helps you become a better teacher because I think that coaching comes down to what is the least, like what is the least that I can give you that will be the most beneficial for you right now? Because I've been very guilty of it in the past. I know a lot of other coaches are guilty of it. You just want to get everything out there to the players, you wanna get all your knowledge out there to the point where it becomes like verbal diarrhea. What is the least I can give you that will be most beneficial right now? So that the athlete knows exactly what it is that he or she has to go focus on in that moment in time. So Oval, is there any specific article, any specific offer or anything you have been taking away from science the most, which helps you to accelerate in your coaching yeah there, I, there's there's a few things i mean i'm 
I, I've been reading a lot of, I, I read a lot. I probably put away 30 to 40 books a year. I, I engage with research almost every single day. And I spend a lot of time looking at how the working memory operates, how do things move from kind of short-term sensory store to working memory to long-term memory, but also how do, just how do you say things to cue your athletes so that they, they know what to focus on, but more importantly, how to improve their performance outcomes. So learning or output. An example of that would probably be um, a book by Nick Winkleman called The Language of Coaching, where in that book, he talks a lot about the difference between external and internal focus cues. So what a coach says right before the athlete is about to perform a movement and how much that can affect their performance outcomes. It's incredible. But the thing about it is this isn't just some anecdotal nonsense. Like this is backed by 20 plus years of research by some very, very credible sources in the biomechanical and scientific fields. Well, it's funny that you're mentioning the book right now because I'm just currently reading it and it's all, it's like a great read and it makes you really like thinking about how to, how to speak towards your athletes and what kind of cues are you giving to, to them and how many you're getting to them. So you're actually making 100% sure that you're getting the message right across. So the book overall is wonderful. It's, it's very beautiful written, as you said as well there so many research comes together in this book and I don't know I've been watching a few interviews with him and he said that the process was overall quite challenging because like when he started to write to write the book there was not that much that many information about external versus internal curing so overall he did a fantastic job and the book has been recommended on our show also several times so um, if anyone haven't hasn't heard of the book yet it's um, thanks for one more time for the recommendation Travis um, we hope we make our listeners curious with this as well and I have one more one more questions regarding the science um, to you how do you how did you actually get so interested in science I, I think it probably stems back to my my education uh, four years of undergraduate school then a couple of years of um, sports psychology at the University of Ottawa so I, I, I did already have experience reading literature, like scientific literature, but I felt as though perhaps, um, perhaps a separator for me in the coaching field would be continuing to engage with scientific literature because a lot of things in coaching are more anecdotal than scientific. There are things that someone else saw someone do. And that person who initially did, they probably saw someone else do it. So it's a lot of rob and do, if you will. So I just felt like there are a lot of great coaches out there who implement a lot of fantastic strategies. And I'm definitely going to rob them and I'm definitely going to do them. But what else can I do? That, that was always the question for me. What else can I do? 
and it always came back to science. If I can know a little bit more about how the brain works, how people process information, what you should or should not say, or just even thinking about how do I approach this training session or, or specific drill? What should I say here that is going to create the most benefit for the players? There was always just this lingering question of what else can I do? And, and that's why I've always continued to engage with science and trying to stay up to date with it. I'm really glad we're hitting on this topic, Travis, because I think this is something that um, I, I find kind of struggling with myself, to be honest. I think it's, it's really hard for me to, to absorb all this material and then kind of find a way that it fits into to my coaching. So can you describe your process a little bit of, of taking something from the science thing and then and putting it into action and figuring out how it works for you? Right. Okay. So I'll use... I'll use Winkleman's uh, book as an example. And, and the good news, the good thing about Winkleman's book is he puts all his, he put all his references in the back. So I've actually read, I think probably about 20 additional articles by Gabriel Wolf on this whole external versus internal cue thing. And I, I didn't even, I didn't even know what this stuff was. I didn't care about it. But as I started reading this book and reading these articles, it really forced me to think about when I'm planning a practice, not only am I planning the drills, but now I'm planning what am I actually going to say here beyond describing the drill itself? How am I going to say the most with the least, but also what am I going to say that is going to be the most beneficial for the players, if I need to stop the drill for an additional teaching moment, what could or what might I say that would promote better performance? And so, so that one piece right there has caused me to take a long ass time to plan a practice as opposed to just putting together a few drills. So that's number one. And number two is it's really forced me to understand the learning process. So I think if you, the coach, are executing a drill and the players aren't doing it right, and then you stop it, and then you give them additional instruction, and they go and do it right, I think the assumption that's often made is that Oh, they, they've learned. They know how to do it now. But the, one, like, the other thing that I've taken from that Winkleman book is like, don't, don't mistake initial performance for learning. The true learning happens when they come back to you. So maybe do that drill again the next day or the day after. Just tell them what the drill is. Don't say anything. Don't say, hey, I'm look hey, remember last practice when I stopped it and made you do this and how good you did it. Let's let's do that again. Don't don't say that. Just have them run the drill. Run through it a few times to see if they've learned. And the evidence of the learning itself is in their performance of it. 
in uh, their performance of the skills within that drill. And if they are performing it, then they've learned. If they are not performing it, then, well, you probably need to think a little bit more about your approach. Is it, is it the skill in the drill? Is it the drill? Should you do it a different way? Did you communicate properly? So long story short, it's created a whole whack load of more work for me in the, in the practice planning and the practice reflection stage. But I think it's way better for the athletes. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. Thanks for that um, for that answer. I think that was uh, that was spot on. I think that's great. So, going into kind of something you mentioned a couple minutes ago, you have a master's in sports psychology, um, and sports psychology I think is a big topic on on our show, but also in our our program at, in Finland. So, how how does that help you in your coaching now, and what kind of tools does that give you for becoming a coach? I I would say that. Learning about sports psychology, you learn you learn about a lot of strategies and techniques that could potentially help a player perform. I would not say that I today I'm one who likes to give strategies and techniques to players as a result of my training. I think what it has done is it's made me more patient and unassuming about players. If a player is not performing or if a player is not perhaps living up to the expectations that that he or she has set or that you, the coach, have set for them, maybe there could be an underlying reason. And that reason could be anything. But if you do not take the time to understand it, then you will be of no benefit for that player. So... I think that that was a very big takeaway for me in learning about sports psychology is that when a player is struggling in the mental performance realm, it is not good enough to just say, here you go, try this, try that. You need to spend some time really understanding what it is that the player is going through, but more so what prompts those perhaps negative thoughts or what prompts the player to feel this insurmountable pressure or something like that. So the great sports, uh, the mental performance consultants that I've come across are very good at this. They ask a lot of questions to learn about what it is the player is experiencing. So for me as a coach, I try to do the same. So We've talked some about your kind of education um, and, and becoming a better coach and learning new tools and everything like that. Um, but I want to touch on your, your experiences that you've had as well. And, you know, we, we talked briefly about before we started the recording, your, your time in New Zealand with, um, I think it was the, the storm. Is that correct? But the, the swarm, 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 sorry. And the, the All Blacks, the time you got to spend with them. Can you describe a little bit about that experience and, and kind of what you took away from that? Yeah, sure. The, the storm are, is what my dad refers to them as. And I've been involved with that team for over two years now, and he still calls them the storm. So, Dad, if you end up listening to this, it's the swarm. Anyway, what was, my, what was the question? What was my experience like? Yeah, sorry. I'm just chuckling here. Um, 
yeah, the, the Swarm. So what was your experience like in, in New Zealand working with them and the other clubs that you got to work with? And then, then also your time at the All Blacks and what did you, you take away from that? Sure. So, yeah, I had an opportunity to work with the Botany Swarm in the New Zealand Ice Hockey League. And then I also had the opportunity to do some work with some minor hockey associations in Auckland, in Tikapo on the South Island. And just a really cool experience. I mean, first speaking about the minor hockey associations, uh, the group in the group in Auckland, uh, super people in Tikapo, like such a badass experience. The entire minor hockey association is run on an outdoor rink in the mountains. So just like kind of a a fairy tale, if you will. And then the working with the swarm was a really fun time because it was my first time working with men. So the age group, I believe at the time was 18 to 42 or 43. We had a player on our team who was essentially the Yermer Yager of the NZIHL. Uh, pretty good guy. But what made it so fun was that although it, it's an amateur league, and although it's predominantly Kiwis with a sprinkle of import players from different countries, those guys are really into it. Like they love playing hockey. They compete hard and they're very, very involved and they want to be as organized as possible to make it as close to professional as they can. So that was really fun. The arenas and the whole environment was so new to me, so unique, so different than uh, the luxuries we have over here in, in Canada or, or North America or many other uh, hockey first countries. So that was really, really great. And, and to this day, there's a number of guys over there that I still talk to regularly. Uh, some of the players who were leaders on the team just fantastic people. And it's unfortunate that we were only over there for about four months because I think if I lived there, I'd probably be really good friends with them, even though I was their coach. And secondly, in, in regards to the all blacks, yeah, we, we quickly chatted about it before the, before the recording of this. And if I was to go back to the two words, it was unique and magical. And I say that because I've read the book Legacy. I've read other books about the All Blacks, the coaches, their players. Many coaches have read Legacy. And what I've found is that many coaches, after reading Legacy, try to implement some of the strategies of the All Blacks. Sweep the sheds, better people make better All Blacks, and all those great catchphrases. But until you've really seen it, it's kind of mythical, and you may think that you could implement it into your environment, but not so easy. And I'll say that because of some of the things I noticed. Watching training sessions, 
the field all of a sudden is populated by players carrying equipment out to the field tackle pads balls padding for the uprights anything you can think of that would go into a rugby training session is not set up by the equipment managers it's set up by the players set up and then taken down by the players and the coaches they go into hotels they go into stadiums everything is brought in by the players and the coaches the entire team operates as one another example would be after games uh, when you see a hockey team finish games there's the three stars and then that's all you see in new zealand in the super rugby league or in the the all blacks test games once the games are finished the players stay on the field to, to do some additional fitness but the magical part happens when they all start walking into the stands as if they're regular members of society and they start mingling with the fans signing autographs taking selfies taking photos i understand that this happens in other north american sports but i've yet to see professional athletes literally walk into the stands and and spend over an hour just mingling with people and then those people not mobbing them like being patient like hey he'll come to me Sonny bill williams will come to me bowden barrett will come to me and there's just kind of this mutual respect between the the players and the the fans or the community that is so deeply rooted in the country and its lore that is so unique and and something that i've not seen necessarily over here in in north america so I learned a lot of things from them, but just seeing it for real and not just reading it in a book made me realize just how much more magical it is. Well, and I don't know, have you, have you experienced the haka, the traditional dance they always perform before the games? And how, how was that experience like and what kind of like influence did that, does, did, did this, did that had on you? Yes, I, I did. So the first time I saw it, we were at a game in Dunedin on the South Island, and they were playing France in the Steinlager series. And uh, the stadium was full, and it was quite loud because the All Blacks were already on the field. And then they started to move towards the middle of the field to, to do the, the haka, super loud. But then all of the sudden, as soon as the entire group kind of does their yell where they go, <gasps> they're it like it's like a pin drop. You can hear a pin drop in the whole building. It just goes completely silent. And everyone, when they're doing it, is just sitting there in amazement or maybe it's even respect the respect that they have for the haka and what it means to the people there. It honestly, it's one of the few moments in my life that I felt like time kind of stood still for a few moments. It was really cool to see and, and be a part of that first time, especially what an experience. Well, you see only the haka usually performing on the video, at least I have. And, you got blessed to see it live one uh, life. So it's 
like as you said, the experience performing, uh, the experience to see performing them, the haka must be like, it must be so entertaining and so fascinating because overall, like what kind of power and what kind of vibes they spread out already on the video. And if you experience this in life, it must be totally different. I can well imagine that a lot of chemicals have been rushing through your brain and through your body. So it must be overall a very unique experience and overall a very unique and magical memory. As we said, I think these two words, unique and magical, they describe the All Blacks so well. And um, we're very happy for you that you actually could make the experience to spend some time with them and seeing performing the Haka. And at the same time, we, we did some research um, before the interview and you, you were lucky to spend some time in the OHL and uh, in the WHL. And what were some of the key, key takeaways from your time in those leagues? Well, my time in the OHL was short. It was only one year. It was a, it was a rewarding year in the sense that it, it essentially became my first access to working with high performance and future like world-class players. So uh, those, I remember those first two months there, it was, it was kind of intimidating to be honest, because we, We had some players on our team who were high NHL draft picks. So they had cachet. And then we also had a first overall pick, 16-year-old named Travis Konechny, who is now like a star in the NHL. He's, he's played for Team Canada at the World Championships. So, hey, even, even coaching that guy when he was 16 was a bit intimidating because I – I initially felt like, what am I going to tell these guys? Like, these guys are so good. They're, they're on their way to the NHL. So that was, that was rather unique those first two months. But I was really fortunate to have a couple guys on the coaching staff. Uh, Chris Byrne, who's now with the LA Kings. Misha Donskoff, I would say. He's now with the Vegas Golden Knights. He was, I, I would say he was my mentor. We roomed together on the road. He taught me a lot about coaching in that environment. So that was that was rewarding for me. And then the WHL, yeah, I was there much longer. Super, super tough league to play in. I would say that it's probably the toughest junior league in the world to play in due to the amount of travel and games that the the players have to to play like they they not only have the game and travel commitment they have the they have to keep up with the on ice training their strength and conditioning their schoolwork for those of uh, those of them who were in high school but then the the team itself was very involved in the community so the players who were not in school it seemed like they were at some kind of community event or at some local school every single day of the week. So super tough, but at the same time, it also seemed like very similar to professional hockey. So it, I found like it, it almost forced you to be proficient in your professional and personal time management if you wanted to accomplish your tasks and achieve your goals for the day or the month or the season. So Travis, you just mentioned now that you said like the overall, the 
game load and the practice load and the travel load is like the highest you have ever experienced in the WHL. What kind of impact does this has on the team over the over the season? I think it could have a lot of impacts, positive and negative. I would say the positive impact is you're you're around each other a lot, so you almost build a, a family-like atmosphere. Not exactly like a family, uh, because I think there are some differences between a legitimate family and a team. But you essentially have you know twenty twenty plus brothers and then you have the staff members who uh, I guess would be maybe the uncles or something like that so you you build this you bond you build this chemistry everyone begins to understand each other's like idiosyncrasies and and become more comfortable with with each other and you, you end up building some relationships that last a long time or even a lifetime and Other positive benefits would be that you improve your your game, improve your the way you conduct yourself, and you also get to see some really cool cities. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of cool cities in the WHL that you get to experience, and even some smaller towns. The the negative parts, I'd say, well, like I said, it's really tough to play. So you really need to be committed if you want to perform every single night in that league. It becomes very taxing having to play a game and then sit on a bus for six hours, catch catch a few hours sleep, then play again the next day. So that becomes difficult. Other things that become difficult because you're on the bus so much when someone farts, the whole thing stinks. So that's really annoying especially to some coaches. <laughs> so I, I would say, I would say that, that those would be the, the biggest impacts. Yeah. That's, um, that's really interesting. I think you, you spoke there a lot about the, the kind of grind that you have to go through as a, as a player, but I think it's, it's also a grind for a coach. So I kind of want to ask them, you know, what, what gets you through that? Why, why do you coach and, and what kind of motivates you to, to go through that grind? I've always been I've always been intrigued by leaders and not just kind of coaches but just leadership no matter what the vocation and I think even though coaching was not initially on my radar I always wanted to lead in some capacity so to to be that catalyst to behavior change to help others see and achieve their goals and help lead an organization to success. I just, but I, at the end of it all for me, I just felt like I should probably do it in the realm that I love. And that was, that was hockey. So it just kind of combines the two things that I really enjoy being in. Could you, see yourself in, in any kind of um, kind of leadership potential and, and how much do you think that kind of um, transfers over if that makes sense? I think there are a lot of things that a leader can have that transfer transfers over to 
other realms of leadership because although leaders in their specific industry, they need to have knowledge of that industry. So if we're talking about hockey coaching, you need to know uh, like structure and, and systems and the technical skills that a player needs to be successful. Much like I, someone who's leading in another realm needs to understand their areas. But there are things that I believe should transfer over regardless. Like, I think a hot topic in the leadership realm for the past number of years is the uh, this idea of soft skills. So if we're going to pick on one of them, let's pick on empathy. I think empathy should translate to any realm if you're a leader. It, it's not just isolated to one sport or one field. I think if you're an empathetic leader, you and you all of a sudden pick up and say, I don't want to, I don't want to lead in this specific realm anymore. I'm going to go over here and do this. You should still be able to be an empathetic leader in that realm once you understand uh, the people. Well, and I think overall it definitely goes also back as well that as a leader, you have to certain responsibility of like creating actually an environment where everyone feels overall safe and i think without really understanding like these kind of soft skills which you have been mentioning right now this is this is really tough to do and you personally as a coach that what kind of environment do you want to create and establish in the team you're coaching safe is a big word so there's a few there's a few things for me so the first is when we talk about that environment the environment needs to be safe so one where the players can feel comfortable coming to knowing that they have a chance to be successful first as a person so their involvement in the program that i'm working with is going to help them be more successful in life second is provide them with the best player development experience to be successful in, in their hockey career, however far they want to go. Third would be to, to help reach their full athletic potential. So I don't think it just kind of goes to hockey. Better athletes, I think, make better hockey players. And, and fourth is to just in general help each player launch their careers in other ways once they exit the program. So if a player all of a sudden no longer wants to play hockey and he wants to be, he wants to go to medical school, then whatever resource the program or me or another coach can provide to help them achieve that goal, we're happy to do that, whether it's a reference letter or making a call on their behalf, or if they need some advice, might not be very good advice, who knows. But it would be those four things, but it comes back to safety. So they feel comfortable to come, they feel comfortable to speak their mind, they feel comfortable to ask questions, and that starts with trust. When you, when you think about your environment that you create, um, can I, how... How do you ensure that your players are 
and enjoying their experience while also focusing on their development and their and reaching their potential? Well, I think to ensure that they're enjoying their experience, I'll come back to the the survey, the surveys that we do. Some of the questions that we ask them focus on that enjoyment and that fun, because if you're not enjoying it, then what are the chances you're actually going to put the most you have into it? I think it's likely that you would not. So I think these surveys yield what they enjoy or don't enjoy. For example, we are currently trying our, trying our best to engage with the players as much as we can away from the rink because we're only allowed into the rink for uh, 15 minutes prior and we have to leave five minutes after we're not allowed to be in a dress room together. Everyone has to sit in uh, seats in the bleachers. Everyone's about six feet apart. So there's not really any time for interaction. And then we go on the ice, we have 50 minutes and I don't want to waste their time by standing there talking about whatever for 10 minutes. 50 minutes of solid work and focus on your development. So uh, obviously a lot of teams are spending time on Zoom. But what we've done is through the surveys is kind of ask them, what would they like to see on Zoom? Because I don't want to just have another meeting where I'm talking or another coach is talking to them. And they've come up with a lot of ideas. They've asked for NHL coaches. They've asked for NHL players. Fortunately enough, I have enough connections to bring some of these people on, which is great. But they've also asked for some subject matter experts. Can we get someone to come on and talk about nutrition? Can we get someone to come on and talk about sleep? Another cool thing uh, that the survey revealed was I feel like I'm not getting to know the coaches enough because we because we don't have that time before or after practice. So now we have a, a virtual coach's office, office hours where it's not mandatory to be there. If you want to check in, ask a question, maybe you had a thought, you can let us know. Sometimes we'll ask someone to come because we want to talk with them. But we're just trying to make the experience as close as possible to knocking on the coach's door and or just coming into the coach's office and, and wanting to to talk. So for me, the, the best way to know if they're enjoying it or not, I think one, body language. So are they smiling? Are they having fun? But two, how are they answering on the surveys? Well, I think overall what you just said here that with the open Zoom, Zoom sessions you're providing your players. I think that's something very, very crucial you're hitting on here. It's like that autonomy piece. And as we all know, that's one of the most essential parts in the self-determination period that actually uh, players have autonomy and there's some kind of player-led coaching. So what kind of role plays autonomy in your coaching and how do you use it? Autonomy is very important for motivation, I think. The more you feel that you have ownership over the, the process of whatever you're doing. So if I'm a coach, maybe if I'm an assistant coach and I, the head coach that day said that he wants me to 
select the drills for practice. I feel a lot of ownership over that. It motivates me to want to do well. So I think the same thing goes for players. If they have options to have ownership over how things go and what they do, they're going to be more motivated by that. So I, I guess an example of that would be giving them tightly controlled choices. So if we have 50 minutes of ice time and we're planning on getting through X number of items on our list for that day, maybe item one, instead of just saying we're going to accomplish it in the these first two or three drills, I'll put six there. You guys pick the two or three that you want out of these six rather than me just telling them what they are. So we've done that a number of times and I think they I think they appreciate doing that because then they have ownership over what they're doing and I actually find that they end up playing harder as a result. I think that's a, a really important piece and uh, and uh, I think it's it's great that we touched on that. And and Travis uh, we we've kept you here pretty long and I think we just got a, a couple more questions for you here if that's all right. Um so the the first one is is when you think about kind of the game of hockey, what, what's your vision of the game of hockey? I suppose it would be make the rules however you wish and coaches are going to find a way to adapt to them. So the, the pandemic has allowed me and some, some other people to watch a lot of older hockey games. And this past weekend we were watching the, 93 cup final i think it was game three when montreal beat los angeles in overtime john leclerc with the winner i believe and then there's been other games on i saw maybe a week or two before that was when edmonton most recently went to the stanley cup final i think it might have been 06 so you see a lot of like similarities but you also see a lot of differences in how the game is played what you are and are not allowed to do where face-offs were dropped like in the in the 93 cup final they weren't even dropping face-offs in the circle they were dropping them in random places around the ice and i was thinking how do they decide that how do they decide to drop it like right next to the blue line but anyway, I very much think that hockey is going to continue to evolve as I think it should because people want to see speed. I think it's becoming a world where people want things done as quick as possible. So less stoppages, less TV timeouts, maybe even less time during the intermissions. But I think regardless of how that proceeds, the coaches and the players who play the game are going to adapt to make it exciting. Well, it's, I think that's like, right, that's something very, very important to consider that we make the game of hockey as exciting as possible. I think that's, um, that's a huge reason for me why I'm starting, why I started 
I, why I started to be I, in that sport. And I think overall, that's a huge reason why a lot of people want to be in that sport. I'd also say, I'd also probably, well, not probably, I would definitely throw in affordable too, because it is, diff, it is expensive. You take, you need a specific surface to play on. And you need specific equipment to play on. So it's not like you can just go outside and, and play it. You need all this equipment and this specific surface. So I'll leave that to the powers to be to determine how to make it more affordable so more people can play, more people of diverse backgrounds get involved in the game because I think we need it. So that's where, that's where I'll leave my vision for the game. Well, great. Thanks, Travis. And I think um, our final question for you is, is if you could speak to Travis Picard at the, the start of his coaching career, what are, what are some of the key learnings or takeaways that, that you would share with him now? I'd probably say two things. First is uh, if I reference my time early on with the 67s and being intimidated, I was also very intimidated in 2015 when Leon Dreisaitl came back from the Edmonton Oilers to play with us in Kelowna. Again, like, what the hell am I going to tell that guy? But nonetheless, like, I shouldn't be surprised by it. But at the time I was, and it, it's that all these guys want to learn and get better. So they're going to listen. So don't feel intimidated by the fact that they're going to go on to be these world-class players, these millionaires. You might be able to offer them something, even if it's a, a very minor piece in their, in their process. And the second part is I'd probably say something about just, just be okay with the fact that you don't have professional playing experience. So it's likely that those with professional experience and don't have coaching experience are probably going to get the opportunities before you do. And just be okay with that. Your, your time will come. Who knows when that would be, but just keep improving your ability to lead and help players get to where they want to be and allow your work to be enough and speak for itself. I think that's a, a really powerful message there at the end. I think it's, it's something that is really important for, I think a lot of young coaches out there without that playing experience to, to hear and, and to feel that, you know, their, their time will come and then and they'll get the chances. And so thanks for, thanks for sharing that. And thanks for being with us here today. I think it was a, a fantastic conversation. Um, I learned a lot and it was uh, great to get to know you a little bit more. Thank you, Derek. Really appreciate it. So thanks to Travis one more time for joining the show and talking to us and sharing some of his ideas and learnings and and just thoughts on on coaching and we dove into a, a lot of different areas around his team coaching and, and kind of what he does with hockey canada and i was um it was an interesting conversation for sure a lot of different areas to touch on but you know one of the things that i wanted to touch on right away is 
it's kind of what what's he's doing with with COVID and his team. And I, I think it's really interesting because he's really diving into the individual focus for his players. And we, we talked about that a lot. And, you know, we had a, an episode with Tommy Nemo about coaching the individual within a team, but COVID's given a, um, a really good opportunity, I think, to, to kind of really focus on the individual development of, of the players. And Travis um, shares a lot of what he's doing and, and, and really interesting and I think the 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 way that they even just ask the players like hey what do you want to see on our zoom meetings what would you like what would benefit you guys it's it's very autonomy supportive and athlete centered of course but it's also um it's a really good way to get the players to think about what they actually need to develop and 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 what they need when they want to make the next step in their careers and everything like that I think that's a, a really interesting thing and and something that is very prevalent right now and in, in the way that things are around the world. Oh yes, for sure it is. It is extremely pre prevalent because due to COVID, of course, we cannot run the things as usually, but I think it, it challenges us um, to come up with certain things and it, it gets us thinking and that's um, getting our creativity going. So I think that's something we should appreciate about the pandemic. And I think uh, every coach uh, who loves challenge has been coming up with certain things during the pandemic and I think it's just, uh, of course, it has huge effects on our society and it is a very dramatic thing. But at the end of the day, I think for us coaches, it's still a great platform to implement some things and to continue to grow. I think there were so many great learning opportunities during COVID. I think for us, the best thing what we could do is starting with the podcast and see with what kind of people we can get connected and with what what kind of content we can provide and how do we actually can make each other better with these kind of things and at this end of the day also it's just so so crucial and so important to continuously educate yourself and I think like this COVID pandemic was as I just said was a great platform for that a lot of meetings have been taking place a lot of webinars a lot of zoom calls so overall it's it has been a successful stage in our life I think and it's coming to an end soon and I strongly believe that when this is over it all makes us stronger and that we all have been taking something away for, from it what we will implement in the future and what I overall enjoyed so far with the episode with Travis today has been his saying that uh, for him a coach is a catalyst for behavior change and for me that's a very academic and educational phrase and a very academic and educational answer and as, as like when we asked him what, what what has had the biggest impact on his coaching um, he said science had the biggest impact on his coaching and I think that ties in here nicely yeah for sure and I I think the the whole pandemic and everything like that it's um, it's been on you know obviously it's a terrible thing and um not not a great circumstance but there's there's that little bright spot of, of being able to kind of sit back and take some more time to, to really learn and really start, start to to dive deeper into subjects and you know you mentioned there that continuous um improvement as a coach and i think uh the the individual player surveys and the anonymous player surveys that, that travis does and talk about in the uh, episode are really a great way to do that and you know we we talk about um, we talk about it a lot with uh, within our program and within our our podcast now. But just if if 
and Wade Gilbert says it's best, you know, if one person teaches, two people learn, right? And it's kind of that two-way street of learning where, it's, you know, you're not just teaching your players as a coach. You, you're you also learning from them. And then Tobias last week said he learned a lot from coaching Rasmus Dahlin and then the other elite players he coached. But, you know, Travis does these surveys and he, and he takes this information from the, from the players and their anonymous responses and then becomes a better coach through those. And he really learns about the individuals that he's coaching and how to coach those individuals, what kind of coaching they need, what they like, what they respond to and everything like that. I think that's a, a really good way to, to dive deeper into knowing your players. And he said that um, to that point where you just made about like, how he said science had the biggest impact on how he coaches. I, I, I really like that answer because I, I, I connect to it. I, I'm a very kind of data-driven kind of person. And it's, um, it was really, really interesting to hear him say off of that, you know, how to kind of give feedback. He talked about Nick Winkleman's new book, um, the, the Language of Coaching, which I know you're reading right now as well. But I think the, the interesting piece of that, of that part of the conversation for me was what is the, the least that I can give you right now that will have the biggest impact on you? And I really like looking at feedback like that because it's really trying to get the players to problem solve on their own and giving them as little information as possible for them to find that answer on their own and find their own way of doing it and, and everything like that. And I think that that's a really big challenge for a lot of coaches is, is minimizing the information that they give out and really allowing their players to explore it for themselves. I thought that was a really interesting piece of the conversation as well. Yeah, I think so too, what goes into, into there is that like overall is that what kind of feedback do you give for players in which age? And I think this is something very challenging for me because I feel that overall the feedback we try to give uh, to our players is overall more or less the same. <laughs> if we if we coach an under-16 player or an under any player under 18 player and I think again we need to consider the cognitive development stage but I think something to look more in depth into the future is actually what kind of feedback can I give a 12 year old and what kind of feedback can I give an 18 year old and how can I make this feedback effective in a certain age so I think that's that's something I was thinking about recently and I think that's something very relevant because I think um it ties into the environment Travis tries to create is that um, he wants to he wants to develop players to his fullest potential to his fullest to his fullest athletic potential or her full, fullest athletic potential and that's a point I can connect with a lot because if we think about us as coaches if I think about myself as well I want to develop myself to the fullest potential as well but on the other side of the coin I cannot develop players to their fullest athletic potential if I do not continue to develop myself and I do, if I do not continue to work on my coaching on my of course I think it's very very important to improve your strengths because at the end of the day we should use our strengths and we should contribute with what we can and what we what we know but at the end of the day if we really want to if we really want to get more let's say more broad and if we really want to get more complete in a way if this is an appropriate word here to use is that is that really like really developing and working on your weaknesses at the same time because this is the way how you become at the end of the day a better coach and overall just how you 
improve how you approach your players? How do you prepare practices? How do you communicate with them? And how do you adjust to circumstances? I think that's something very crucial to think about. And the, the other thing too is that, as I, as I said in the introduction, Travis was fortunate to spend some time with the All Blacks. And I think the only two words which describe it here is that how we have been phrasing it in the conversation as well as that it's unique and magical. I think everyone who has never experienced uh, Hakka from the All Blacks should do it. You can find plenty of videos uh, in YouTube. It's, <laughs> it's so insane. And he has been experiencing it in life. I think it's goosebumps 100%. And I think it's really tough to explain this experience. You really need to, to really know how it feels like you need to experience it so you can internal, internalize it. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, speaking there about the, the All Blacks, it, it got me thinking about, you know, what uh, a story we heard about the All Blacks in class one time is now one time they they were just thinking there at a, at a I think they had a, a couple of bad games. And then one of the, the members of the leadership group said, like, why are we focusing on on what we're doing wrong? Like, why don't we focus on, on what we do the best, you know, and, and talking about how you just mentioned working on your strength at the same time of just developing your weaknesses. And you should do that with your players as well. I believe, you know, like don't just work on the weaknesses your players have working what makes them really good players. And I think that's kind of like what the, the all blacks are trying to do there. It's like, why don't we become, you know, like really good at what we already do really well, you know, and become the best at that and really use that to our advantage. And I think that's a really interesting uh, piece and I can't remember that story fully but um, I think it, it ties in well here and the last thing I want to um, talk about about the episode itself is, is that environment piece that he tries to create Travis tries to create in his game uh, in his team as well and I a specific piece about it I really liked how going back to kind of what he's been doing in response to to COVID and not being able to meet as a team is is hosting these, these virtual coaches hours or coach's office hours, kind of like a professor would do in a university. And I think that's a, a really wrong piece and then kind of just having an open door policy for your players to come in and, and just chat about whatever's going on on the ice, off the ice in school, or, you know, if they just want to get to know you better, they can come in and just talk to him. And I think that's a, a valuable piece where it shows the players that, that you really care about them and, and that you want to get to know them better and everything like that. And I think that's something to, to kind of steal and implement after COVID as well, when we can finally meet back in person and everything like that, and it's uh, safe to do so. So it's it's really interesting, and I, I, I really enjoyed the, the whole conversation with him today. Um, but kind of overall, I think it was really nice to chat with him because he, he really challenged us, I think, as, as hosts of the podcast and, and really challenged us to, to kind of think outside the box with, with what we're doing and try to implement some some new things and, and, you know, we've been working for a while now and I'm trying to become kind of more natural and having more natural conversation within our episodes. So it's, um, it was good to, to be challenged in that way as well from, from our guests. And it was, it was interesting. It was a very challenging episode, I think, to, to host, but it was, it was refreshing to, to hear that from Travis and, and yeah, just once again, big thanks to, to him for coming on. Yeah, and I think overall too is like what you just said about those virtual um, office hours. I think that's a 
great way to build relatedness to our place. And I feel that we have been highlighting it on our show as well, but relatedness is the piece what is sometimes a little bit standing alone in the self-determination in the self-determination field. And we really need to critically think about that this is part of it and that we really, how actually, how do we can make it possible to integrate relatedness in our, in our daily practice environment and in our daily coaching? I think it's a relevant question we need to ask ourselves. And the last takeaway for me is from the conversation, justice core values. They are very evolved. Um, he can explain them very well. He has his reason why he has those. And I think being humble and how he's like describing it, it's like for him, for him is it being open-minded to learn and being hungry for excellence. I think that's, that's something, that's a very, very cool core values because at the end of the day for me, well, striving for excellence, I think it's a, it's a huge peach is a huge piece in coaching it's a huge piece in player development and it's a huge piece in in growing as a human being and it's a huge piece and like really becoming a, a better coach uh and as i just said also as a better to become a better human being and his last last core value was honor just reputation family and friends and i think that's that's that those are very very interesting core values and i think they will stuck with me quite much yeah for sure and i i agree he can really explain those well and they're well thought out he's uh overall it was just really nice to to talk with him because he, he really thinks through everything and 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 he's very uh thought-provoking when he speaks i think so I think that's a, a good place to end it for this week's episode with Travis Quipard. Uh Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to connect with the show on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at The Coaches Road. And check out our drive, and the link to that is on our new website, thecoachesroad.com. Thanks again, and we will see everybody next week. 